0: Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region.
1: Hello and welcome to Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli security experts and practitioners. And our guest today is Dr. Uzi Rubin, one of Israel's pioneers in aeronautical engineering Missile defense and various other defense uh, projects. I am Amir Oren. Uzi, welcome.
0: Thank you, Amir. It's a pleasure to be interviewed by you.
1: Thank you. You are also the author of uh, your book, uh, From Star Wars to Iron Dome. Uh, These are two terms which will come up in our conversation because they are, um, in a way, uh, milestones in uh, the uh, original work that Israel uh, has done in this field, along with cooperation with the American uh, uh, Department of Defense and uh, defense industries. Uzi, you started out um, in IAI, uh, in the uh, Israel Aerospace uh, Industry, known as- At that time, Israel
0: Aircraft Industry. In my time, time,
1: Israel is the aerospace industry. So uh, out of that meager start, how did Israel, and especially IAI, uh, grow up uh, to be such an important player in uh, global markets?
0: I'd say uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, A bunch of young people, newly, freshly educated in aeronautical engineering. Reading the aeronautical literature of the time, getting fired up with the imagination, and trying everything, we tried a space program already in the 1960s because we didn't know how difficult it was. So it was for us a piece of cake. We we, we were going to do it. So there was a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of crazy program, a lot of good programs, too.
1: the space, but, space program, you mean the Shavit missile, which was launched in it July was, of 61? It was,
0: it was not exactly the Shavit. The basic idea was, let, let me move forward and tell Please. you that one day when I was on the Minister of Defense, I was newly established, launched, not at that time I was a to the Minister of Defense, running some defense project. My boss called me and asked me whether I think that Israel can launch a satellite. That was in 1979. And without hesitating, I said, yes. And he kind of stood back, thought for a few seconds, and then asked me, what, what makes you say that? He said, because we had a preliminary design of an Israeli missile satellite launcher already in 1964. He, he was flabbergasted. He said, we, we tried everything. And then he told me, you know, there is some crazy guy, a colonel called Chaim Eshed. He's running around looking for the opportunity to, to go into space. So go talk to him. I said, well, why not? I went back, called, told my secretary, find Jaime. He's got a phone number. He came to my office, and I remember this is like today. I told me, Uzi, I've got to be in my bonnet. I want an Israeli satellite. For what? For reconnaissance, because at that time, each reconnaissance was uh, you know, a cabinet, cabinet meeting in order to approve it. It was very dangerous. And I looked at him I said, Chaim, you came to the right, the right address. This is this is it. I, I'm all for it. Everything I'm going to do, I'm going to help you. And we became a team from that day on. So this is uh, reminiscing. We were and this. I say, one thing, a bunch of young people full of imagination. The second, the fall of the Delavie, which was a crucial point. People don't realize how crucial it was to make Israel an,
1: an aerospace giant. Let, let me just uh, explain De was uh, an indigenous aircraft um, production project based um, on the F-16 on uh, Lockheed's uh, F-16 but of course adapted to uh, Israeli needs with uh, original, Designs you may expand
0: Uh, on it. Let let Uh, me correct you. It was a fully indigenous Israeli design, except the motto.
1: Okay, motto was an American motto. Uh, This was uh, through the 1980s. It started out as a smaller plane, and then it was expanded. It uh, was based on American assistance. There was resistance within the Israeli Defense Forces as well as in the Pentagon, and in 1987. It was aborted. Please go on. So this was a milestone because out of this defeat, uh,
0: the defense industry and the minister of defense learned a lesson. The lesson is that the Israel defense industry cannot rely on the internal market; it has to go outside. Export and it it reformed itself accordingly. But what's less known is that the minister of defense who regulates it also reformed itself. All the mechanisms of supporting uh, export, the defense export were grown up at that time, and also of controlling it, like API, the authority for controlling of defense. Because when you, when you export, you have to take obligations. You have to export like a civilized paper country in a legal way. So you have to bring the legal structures to support the export, and to control the export, and to polish the export. All these things grew in fits and starts, in fits and starts, sometimes under American lash, until we had this structure of the defense industries fully attuned to the foreign market, not just to it, of course, to the internal market, but not relying on the internal market. 80%, between 70 and 80% of what's produced down in the Israel defense industry is for export.
1: So just to elaborate um, on how it all unfolded, uh, when Israel was established in 1948 and through the 1950s and 60s, the uh, most urgent task was the import of weapons and the embargo put on Israel by various powers. So that was the reason that Israel started to develop an indigenous industry. But then, came what you are referring to, the economy of scale. Israel could produce weapons for the Israeli Defense Forces, but it would have been too expensive unless uh, foreign customers were found. And that shifted the emphasis from import to export, the problems that you're uh, now referring to. So... um, You were um, an enthusiastic engineer at uh, the Israel aircraft uh, industry. You mentioned that in 1964, you already had a design for a satellite. And we know now uh, by reading uh, foreign sources that when various countries have satellite launchers, observers are saying, well, these are really missiles. The only difference is what comes um, on the third stage, whether it's a warhead or a satellite. So countries um, with the ability to launch anything um, above the atmosphere or uh, ballistically can choose between doing it for a warlike mission or for reconnaissance, communications, and the like.
0: Let me say this. The... Uh, yeah. Uh, there is a commonality of technology, but not conf- commonality of configuration. That means if you take a satellite launcher, you cannot use it as a ballistic missile. If you take a ballistic missile, you cannot use it as a satellite launcher. There are important configuration differences. However, if you control the technology of one, you control most of the technology of the other. So this is the kind of commonality. But if you take the Iranians for some, for, for example, they, they've shown up to now three different satellite launchers of their own design. I say one of them is almost a ballistic missile. One is half a ballistic missile. And the third one, which is the biggest one, is not a ballistic missile at all. It's a satellite launcher. It cannot use in any way. This is in in
1: addition to the ballistic missiles that they have. They do have.
0: So uh, so it is most countries in the world started the way for uh, satellites into space with ballistic missiles, R7. A Russian satellite launcher uh, designed by Sergei Korolev, the great Sergei Korolev, was basically an ICBM, the first ICBM in the world, very cumbersome.
1: Intercontinental ballistic
0: intercontinental missile. Ballistic. It took 48 hours to prepare it for launch. And he got permission from Khrushchev to set aside three of them to make them into satellite launchers and succeeded uh, The Sputnik. It turned into what's called the R7.
1: Americans, in, the same thing. They took in, in your book from uh, Star Wars to Iron Dome, you devote um, a chapter to uh, one forgotten episode. And this is how uh, Israel, uh, when necessity knocked on the door during the so-called War of Attrition in 1969, 1970, um, on the Suez Canal, Israel came up uh, with the drones, drones which were earlier only uh, used as targets by um, jet pilots um, in a a range when uh, they wanted to shoot down a target uh, and drones were used for that. And um, you tell your readers how uh, these drones were adapted for reconnaissance when other when other uh, countries did not see fit to do it they used the u2 sr 71 so, uh, so it's actually
0: most more, more more complex and more comical than that because uh, the air force tried to use uavs actually they bought they bought uavs from the united states but those were reconnaissance uavs they don't loiter they just do reconnaissance passes like a manned aircraft Tenadine it wasn't Ryan. good enough. You needed something to loiter, so there was a brilliant guy, a, a, a major I think, in the intelligence corps who, who was an enthusiast, a radio control enthusiast. So he suggested buying radio control toy aircraft, putting a camera, a commercial camera, and flying them. And to the credit of the intelligence force, they all fell in love with the idea. They bought five kits. They by hand. Assemble uh, the the toy aircraft. Put both cameras somewhere in Tel Aviv and stack them up together. And put up the mechanism for automatic, not automatic, but command control for taking pictures. And the first pictures of the other side of the Suez Canal are in the Google. You can find them. The first pictures were were uh, published.
1: But this young officer was a prophet without honor. Only when he moved to California. Where oh, no, comf- comf-
0: this comf- is another it's, guy? It's another guy. It's okay. completely different. Good, guy.
1: good to know. But there, yeah. there was another guy. There was
0: another guy who uh, uh, who uh, was frustrated. He, w- he designed the Kfir, the uh, first Israeli f- fighter aircraft before the Lavi. Uh, he-, he was also a brilliant engineer, and his wings were somewhat clipped in this, uh, you know, very high hierarchical industry like IAI, which is a little like a government. Uh, So he left to California. Uh, I met him once. He was very old at that time when I gave a presentation in Los Angeles. Uh, But you know, uh, he didn't make much out of that. He he designed the first American UAV, successful UAV. It's not the first American UAV. It was the second UAV. The first one failed. The the second one that he designed was quite successful. But uh, all the rights, he sold all his rights to General Atomics and probably didn't make much out of it. So
1: what is the lesson regarding the Israeli way of um, R&D, of research and development? Uh, Is it improvisation? Is it because of the informal nature of the Israelis and of the Israeli system, where you can come up um, uh, with an idea and sell it to the highest authority uh, with no constraints, no long budgetary Uh, process. Is that a plus or a minus? Well,
0: the full answer is in my book. (laughs) You have to translate it read it in English or learn Hebrew. Uh, The whole book is about that. What what is the secret here? And I call it the push-pull model. The Israeli model is a push-pull model. Push-me-pull-you. You You remember Dr. Doolittle, this animal with the two heads, push-me-pull-you? The Israeli system of innovation, military innovation, is push-me-pull-you because we have a separation of authority here. The military, who are very conservative, as all military in the world, with, with some, some, some uh, adaptation to uh, uh, innovation. I, I won't say that they don't, but they're very formal and they have the, the only mandate to make operational requirements. The military must, nobody else is, is, can issue an operational requirement to the military equipment. Only just
1: just to illustrate. If the Navy wants to have a missile boat, their officers uh, come up with the requirements uh, because because of the doctrine, because of the enemies that they are facing, and they are giving the ministry and the industries um, the operational requirements. However,
0: we have our own DARPA,
1: MAFAT. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency.
0: As the full mandate, the only mandate to do development. So you see this too, the separation of powers here, which, uh, which actually generates innovation. Because the Israeli DARPA can go ahead and design and develop everything up to an op- operational system. It can design a prototype aircraft, if it wants, if it has the budget. It doesn't need the, the operational requirement. It doesn't need the permission of the military. Usually, this is cooperation. Iron Dome is an example. It was started by the R&D directorate
1: against the military who did not. We, we will get to Iron Dome, but but can you please explain to our viewers, where do you draw the line between basic research, applied research, development?
0: You don't draw the line too much. It's really, it's a matter of uh, tradition. and It's a very personal matter of the head of the R&D directorate. I mean, he was an innovative guy, or he may be a clerk type. We had like some some like those and some like those. Whenever there are enthusiastic development people, they run ahead and uh, they they flourish. They come up with all kind of new design. Of course, there is always the need, like uh, you know, the tunnel problem and the Gaza. This this created a need for a technical solution. So the R&D directorate brilliantly came up with uh, with solution. And
1: you have to earmark a certain percentage of the budget. For such uh, a playground, for people to to um, attack problems which may not even exist yet and uh, find some some uh, creative solutions. That's true,
0: but let me say that uh, the R&D directorate is very generously defunded, partly by the Ministry of Finance directly. This was an arrangement created to the credit of the. Uh, um, uh, General uh, Ben Israel, who uh, who thought up this idea of cooperating directly with the Treasury,
1: he took part in our series,
0: so uh, I give him the credit for that. That our R and D is very generously funded, and in fact, uh, they could advance on their own on the way to our. They, they didn't have the money to do the full development, but they could advance it to the way, but it couldn't be killed anymore. But there there
1: are two senior R&D positions. There is the uniformed uh, brigadier general position of head of R&D for the military, and then above him, a major general or equivalent, the um, head R&D for the defense establishment.
0: Yes, he's generally a civilian, even if he's an ex-military. I think Ben Israel was the only one who served in uniform as the head of R&D directorate. Usually it's a civilian. Under him is the head of the R&D division who does basic research. Parallel to him are all the program managers. Each one of them is equivalent to the head of the R&D division. So he's doing just innovative technologies and innovative small programs.
1: You, you personally, as a civilian... Um, you were one of those program managers, the equivalent of a brigadier general, the one-star. And actually, when you visited uh, Russia, they used to call you general.
0: Yes. Yeah, but it is, in Russia, you're a general designer. The, the, the general was not necessarily a general in the military. It was a general designer. They thought me a general I was not. But it is their system that the smartest guy becomes the head of the design office. And he's a program manager and the chief designer and everything together, like Korolev was, and other ones, Yengel and others. Mikoyan and Gurevich. Mikoyan and Gurevich, well, there were two. Yeah, the parallel. This is a Soviet system, which doesn't exist in the United States. doesn't exist in the West. doesn't exist here. But so, they made a mistake. So, the so you,
1: you were, let's take your position, um, when you were later uh, in charge of systems on which we will talk in the second... Uh, installment of of this uh, conversation. You were, let's say, three ranks down the top of the ladder from the Minister of Defense. Could you simply knock on the minister's door, bypass all the uh, superiors between yourself and him, and tell him, listen, there is a solution which is stuck up in bureaucracy, please help?
0: Let's say, theoretically, I could do it. And I did it in my career, but only twice. Because this is a very something that you use. You know, you do that, you buy the enmity of everyone else. You don't want to do it on bureaucratic grounds. But on two occasions, when I needed to change a program manager in the industry, I went directly to the Minister of Defense, Arens, whom I knew was also my teacher in the technical school. And I told him, he said, go ahead and do what you need. But I needed his backing, uh, because I was fighting uh, quite powerful forces in the industry. And the second time was uh, an occasion which I cannot be too much too elaborate about Rabin. When something happened which I needed to talk directly to him, I asked for an interview. And I'll never forget that. He accepted me. He knew me. So he received me without any of his aids. We were four eyes and had a two hours talk about four eyes, out of which came out a huge program. A huge program. He approved
1: your suggestion He approved my
0: idea of an approach about something and, and then backed me up in all the bureaucratic struggles. So I use this prerogative, but very,
1: very sparingly. Now, people with your uh, professional expertise and experience usually serve uh, in your positions longer than the officers who come and go. They serve... Uh, Two-year twos, uh, yes. three-year tours. Um, is that a problem? Or is that because they need fresh blood, they, they sometimes go back into the field, and they enjoy the experience of seeing it from the other side of the hill. How does that work? Um, I, had, I was running several
0: programs. Some of them were completely civilian, with a fixed civilian team that never changed. And some of them were with military staff, which changed every three years. Thinking back, I rather like the military stuff to change because the new guys first I could choose them, so I had a selection. Whether it's or something else, it's a tenure. You can't touch them. In order, to, if you want to replace a not good, well, you have to fight your way through the civil uh, service union, the union and the civil service. With the military, you can simply wait until uh, if there's somebody you don't like, you wait. Three years and he goes away.
1: Lieutenant colonels and colonels.
0: Yes, and I received the best one from the air force and the navy. I had some navy, and they were the excellent. I better liked better this system, with a uh, kind of uh, shifting, and each uh, almost from each one of them I learned something. They came with their own ideas and their own methods of work, and uh, you know I don't not only teach them I. I learned from
1: them. How about the budget guys? Uh, the people either in the finance ministry or on the um, uh, similar shop uh, at the uh, defense ministry. Uh, could you get along with them? Well, you know, there was a rubbing of shoulders
0: uh, for a while until we had a common language. And from that day on, uh, look, I was privileged in uh, the, the missile defense program to be partially financed by the United States. So there is a magic magic, uh, formula here, that uh, when you budget something with the US US dollar and the Israeli shekel together, two and two doesn't make four. Two and two makes eight. Because once there is an American obligation to put a dollar, there must be an Israeli obligation to put so many shekels. So you don't have to fight them too much. Actually, you have to do your fighting in the United States which is in Congress with the senator in order to increase the budget. When that budget increases, the Israeli budget must come too. So
1: I'm in a unique position. But uh, Dr. Rubin, there is um, a constant refrain, a constant criticism, that uh, sometimes people who develop or users of uh, such toys are in love uh, with the product, and pay less attention to life cycle costs, which in the long run uh, could be um, billions upon billions, even if the initial project seemed uh, economical. Is that uh, correct? Uh, is that justified?
0: Yeah, it's a, some. some it's, it, it is justified in some occasions. I mean, it really it's a personal matter. Um, I, as a program manager, was attuned very much to the budget because you know my relation with. Uh, Program manager in the industry was, I always compare it to the producer and uh, um, Bamai, director. the director. The director of a movie. The director of the movie is the art manager of the movie. It's on his name, but the money must come from the producer. He must come sign up the big names. He must link the team together. He must give the director all the background. And then he has to supervise what the director is doing.
1: You know, we have it in this studio too.
0: <laughs> so I was, I was the producer. And as a producer, I was much attuned to the budgetary program, the budgetary problem, and the uh, life cycle cost. Uh, yes, uh, I'd say, yes, we had to think about
1: that too. Uh, Dr. Rubin, um, just to end this uh, first uh, installment, let's go back to what you mentioned regarding Delavi and uh, look at the uh, general background of Israeli independence in producing uh, major weapon systems. There was a time in the late 60s when Israel hoped and believed that it could produce major systems for all the branches, Uh, a main battle tank minus the engine, a missile boat, and a fighter plane. Uh, this was um, at a time when nations wanted an independent steel industry and uh, an independent uh, car industry, along with uh, aviation. Uh, it's not economical. Uh, you can't really support it, can you?
0: Well, partly yes, because we are now doing our making our tanks and making. Uh, we used to make our own ships. Now, now even with ships, we went aboard. Um it's, it's almost impossible with fighter aircraft, almost impossible. But then when you take the pilot out and you talk about unmanned aircraft, even complicated ones, you are back in the uh, less intensive, comp- capital intensive uh, uh, field. And you can allow yourself to build your own industry. And we, we built our own industry we were, for a while. We were world leaders in, in this area. It's, it's interesting that uh, Turkey, by the way, which is now becoming uh, military industry power, actually was kicked into this direction, also very similar. They were refused uh, UAVs, armed UAVs by the United States. And that started them, they were much insulted because they are NATO members. And that started the very flourishing defense industry that we see today.
1: Dr. Wuzi Rubin, uh, we will uh, go on uh, into missile defense and um, other interesting subjects in our second conversations for the time being. Thank you very much, and we will see you again shortly.
0: Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.